We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer for January 24th, 2023. Today, we welcome professional coder, auditor, and consultant Terry Fletcher to talk about coding confusion caused by the AMA. We'll hear an update on the social determinants of health from Tiffany Ferguson. Lori Johnson has the latest coding news. Dr. John Zellum adds another entry in his journaling, John M.D., Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who's celebrating the Lunar New Year by wearing his Bugs Bunny t-shirt and an Elmer Fudd cap, Chuck Buck. <laughs> yes, indeed. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our 538th live edition Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Uh, first, Erica, I want to tell you that, of course, you were missed last Tuesday. Fortunately, our good friend, Dr. Jim Kennedy, was our guest co-host. Yep. Yeah, yes, I'm very glad he was able to cover for me. Thanks, Jim. So, uh, Erica, once again, welcome back. And by the way, I do notice that you've got a webcast coming up this Thursday. It's on sepsis. Why is sepsis such an enigma? Chuck, I honestly don't understand <laughs> the issue anymore. There is only one definition of sepsis now, life-threatening organ dysfunction due to dysregulated host response to infection. I'm hopefully going to clear up the enigma on Thursday. We look forward to your webcast. Learn the secrets to preventing sepsis denial. And folks, that webcast is coming your way. It's this Thursday. It's January the 26th at 1.30 p.m. I hope to see a lot of you there. What is the subject today of your talkback? I'm talking about how it's time to adapt your templates since the E&M guidelines changed on January 1st. As always, Erica, we look forward to your talkback segment. Folks, we have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And today I'm going to be talking about nursing home antipsychotic medications. CMS told us last week that we have made significant progress in decreasing the inappropriate use of antipsychotic medications in nursing homes, but more needs to be done, said CMS Administrator Shakita brooks Lashure. People in nursing homes deserve safe, high-quality care, and we were doubling our oversight efforts to make sure facilities are not prescribing unnecessary medications. This seems like a great idea. Um, unfortunately, I asked my sister about this. She's been a nursing director of nursing for a nursing home in California for over 25 years. I was shocked by her response, and I also learned a lesson. She told me that for many nursing homes, these changes created havoc and staffing shortages. She told me that in most cases, it did not improve the quality of life for her patients. She wanted to tell me that a large number of nursing home patients have dementia and that when you stop giving them antipsychotic medications instead of docile elderly patients with dementia, you have wide-awake patients that can start wandering around your nursing home or fighting with your staff. Nursing homes recently received an increase of only 2.7% for 2023. But according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, overall inflation was running at 6.5%. These cuts are forcing down the amount that nursing homes can pay in salaries. Indeed, nursing homes are also, many nurses are opting to work as travel nurses in the home health industry at a higher rate rather than going to nursing homes. And that's leading to shortages in staff for nursing homes. So if we're going to ask nursing homes to do more, we have to pay them more. And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert, and he is the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It is Tuesday. It's January the 24th, and you're listening to the 538th Live Edition Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Today's healthcare world is one of confusion, uncertainty, and noncompliance. During tight budgets, the folks at MedLearn are here to help with the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Keep your team trained and in the know with this web-based platform created to help you make an impact on your revenue without breaking the bank. So you can focus on what matters most, patient outcomes. For a single low annual subscription, all your teams will have convenient one-stop access to the complete libraries of three trusted brands, MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor. One low monthly cost, unlimited access, and all the CEUs you need. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Increase your knowledge with workable coding solutions and actionable answers so you can put the focus back on patient care with the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Now's the time for the Talk to Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. Today, I want to talk about the CPT Editorial Panel. The CPT Editorial Panel and the Healthcare Professional Advisory Committee will be held February 2nd, 2023 through February 4th, 2023. This hybrid meeting will be held in La Jolla, California, which is Chuck's neck of the woods. And the time is from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific time. It is possible to register as a virtual attendee, and we will put that um, or the URL out there in the chat so that you can see um, what it is. It's pretty long. The registration to attend in person for this meeting closed on January 20th. The agenda includes revisions to evaluation and management codes, new codes for remote patient multi-day comprehensive Euroflow flowometry, new codes for intra-abdominal tumor excision or destruction, new Category 3 codes, updates to appendices and PLA codes, and Category 3 codes to be retired. There are a total of 42 items on the agenda. The results of this meeting will be published on or before March 2nd on the AMA website. If you want to submit comments, the process begins by submitting a request form that is found on the CPT panel website. The request form is to seek interested party status. The form identifies the requester, gathers some brief information about the basis of the request, and a signature on the confidentiality agreement and disclosure of interest forms. Written comments for non-pathology issues are submitted via interested party portal for pathology and laboratory concerns. Written comments are submitted to the CPT staff via email. The next CPT panel meetings have been scheduled. May 4th to May 6, 2023 will be held in Chicago, Illinois, and September 21st to 23rd, 2023 meeting will be held in New Orleans, Louisiana. Registration to attend in person or virtually is required. This is a great opportunity to learn more about the CPT changes for 2024 and beyond. And one more thing is that the ICD-10-CM and PCS codes effective April 1st, 2023 were released 
on January 11, 2023. And you can find those files on the CMS website under Medicare um, coding ICD-10 and then look at the 2023 um, entries. They also have released updated um, guidelines as well. There are 42 new diagnosis codes and 34 new procedure codes. So there's a lot more to come on this topic. So with that, I will turn it back to Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson, Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori Johnson, thank you again very much. The social determinants of health, that's a topic that we first introduced here at ICD-10 Monitor, continues to be one of interest to coders. So here now with our report on the social determinants of health is Tiffany Ferguson, and good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. I'm going to elaborate a little bit on what Timothy Powell uh, spoke on and talk about some other updates. So there's been a lot of things that have come out through CMS in the last week. Uh, I thought it would be imperative to kind of provide a brief update of each one, and you can check out in my article this week more elaborate details of each of these items. All of these are relating to post-acute transitions and the impacts that we're seeing uh, that could play a role in our hospital patients and our outpatients, especially for coding. So one is related to our skilled nursing facilities, as Timothy Powell mentioned. Uh, What they had mentioned was they decided to conduct, CMS is now deciding to conduct off-site remote targets on nursing and skilled nursing facilities to make sure they are accurately assessing and coding individuals with schizophrenia. What he had mentioned is there's a concern of nursing homes that may be erroneously diagnosing patients with schizophrenia and potentially over-utilizing antipsychotic medications. The issue of impacting coding here is if there's inaccurate coding found during these audits is that related to schizophrenia, the skilled nursing facilities are now at risk for their Medicare Quality Star rating uh, could be downgraded. So health systems or organizations that are involved in coding for skilled nursing facilities may want to consider an internal audit of their patients diagnosed with schizophrenia or those who have received any antipsychotic medications to make sure patients who are accurately coded and represented. Next is there's some adjustments to the face-to-face requirements for durable medical equipment, prosthetics, orthotics, and supplies, also known as DME-POS. As of January 17th, they have added an additional 10 orthoses that will require a face-to-face encounter. There must be clear documentation in the medical record, which demonstrates the intent for the equipment and a written order prior to delivery for the equipment uh, with this condition. This makes a grand total of about 63 items that now require a face-to-face visit prior to ordering and receiving any DME POS. The majority, when I looked at the list, are items, they seem logical, they're items related to fitting, sizing, custom fitting to the patient, and then they're primarily around orthopedic needs. Also, there's a huge list of powered wheelchairs, mechanical equipment that require the face-to-face and also likely a prior authorization. This does obviously create some delays for anyone in hospital and post-acute thinking of the necessity of a visit related to then ordering equipment, so something to consider. 
Additionally, they added um, as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2023, Section 4137, home health companies are going to receive an additional 1% for any patients they serve in a low population density category. Uh, it's important to note if your county falls in that category or not, uh, I've included a map that'll come out this week. So make sure to check out those details. What I'd like to ask, because there's so much surrounding kind of the impact of skilled nursing facilities, our question for this week is, does your hospital or health care organization have ownership of a skilled nursing facility? Yes, no, or does not apply. This will help me understand the coding piece. And with that, back to you, Dr. Reamer. Thanks, Tiffany. That was Tiffany Ferguson, the CEO for Phoenix Medical Management. We continue with our series here on Talking Tuesday. It's called Journaling John MD. Here now is the Journaling John MD, Dr. John Zellman. Good morning, Dr. Zellman. Good morning, sir, and good morning to everybody. We're going to continue this ongoing series of what's happening to rural hospitals. And today's going to talk about rural hospital financial strain. There's a financial crisis in these days going on with, with these uh, urban hospitals. According to the American Hospital Association, approximately 29% of hospitals in the United States, 1,796 in number, can be considered rural hospitals. According to the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform, more than 600 of them, about 30%, are at risk of closing in the near future. To break this down even further, this represents about 25% of rural hospitals in half of the states, and 40% in 10 states. Simply said, these closures are happening because these hospitals have insufficient reserves and are not paid sufficiently to cover the delivery of services they provide in their areas. This was a challenge even before the pandemic, but it's been exacerbated. Private health insurance typically pay poorly to begin with and are vultures in the denials arena with a small overturn upon appeal. There are a plethora of reasons for this, it becomes a numbers game because the population numbers are lower in rural areas, leading to fewer emergency room visits and in-house care. A common myth for rural hospitals is that most of their patients are Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, but the truth is more than half of the patients have private insurance or no insurance at all. In the past, these hospitals have had access to grants, local tax revenues for hospitals that are community hospitals, and the ability to capitalize on other community activities to offset expenses. But these resources have dwindled significantly. With the economy having declined recently and the cost of supplying the care has changed at a higher rate than in the past. Federal aid has played a positive role, but this may not continue at the same pace. The Medicare waivers also did help with some of the restrictions, but this may be ending in the very near future. Another factor is that even though census numbers may be low in these hospitals, the cost of staffing doesn't change. And in order to get good quality nurses, physical therapy, and others, pay must be appropriate for today's market and the ability to attract this quality. Same thing with physicians, but we'll talk about that in another session. Non-routine services to be provided, such as specialties, may not be available on a daily basis. The financial burden is just one of the multitude of factors affecting rural hospitals, yet these facilities are so important to a large population in this country. 
More challenges will be presented in subsequent parts of this series. Too many Americans that represent the backbone of industries so important to our economy, such as farming and small business, need access to immediate good quality health care, and we have an obligation to ensure its survival. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, John. I agree. That was Dr. John Zellum, the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting, and he's the physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Community Hospital and Adams Memorial Hospital, both in Indiana. Chuck? Thank you both. And a program reminder, you're listening to the 538th Live Edition Talking Tuesday, where the time is almost 17 minutes after the hour in your time zone. Stand by, please. Sepsis is the chameleon of diseases. It's easily mistaken for other diseases and very often not coded correctly. But the documentation must support the diagnosis. Coders and clinical documentation integrity professionals must ensure that the diagnosis is picked up when the condition is present and get clarification if the diagnosis is not supported by clinical indicators. Now you and your team can get the keys to unlocking the mystery of sepsis when you attend an exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast led by Dr. Erica Reamer. During this essential webcast, Dr. Reamer will explain the concept of sepsis, empower you with the tools to recognize appropriate clinical indicators, and ultimately prevent costly denials and impacts to quality metrics. This important webcast is this Thursday, January 26th. Register now to learn the secrets to preventing sepsis. Now, let's take a look at today's Talked In Tuesday listener survey. Once again, here is Tiffany Ferguson. So what I asked our listeners is, does your hospital or healthcare organization have ownership of a skilled nursing facility? And it looks like about 24% said yes, about 50% said no, and the rest are it does not apply. And Dr. Reamer said, uh, asked a great comment of maybe we should include an option of I have no clue what my organization is doing. And sometimes on Mondays and Tuesdays, we may feel that way or during the week. Uh, For you guys that answered yes, just make sure to kind of check out that information related to schizophrenia and coding uh, and maybe look at an internal audit and CMS is looking at auditing that for coding. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. And coming up next, our lead story with Terry Fletcher. Today's lead story is sponsored by HITECHS, a clinical informatics organization dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care. Find them at HITECHS.com. You know, we've been reporting on the coding confusion created when the American Medical Association combined two service types into one code set for inpatient and observation services initial and subsequent. Here now with the details is Senior Healthcare Consultant Terry Fletcher, and good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, listeners. So just when we thought the 2021 EM update was getting easier to understand, the 2023 EM rules came out to bring hospitals more in line with this medical decision-making and time, con- time concepts of leveling visits. However, when AMA combined the initial inpatient hospital visits with observation-designated patients, the waters became a little bit murkier. So we have also a little payer issue, and this is when AMA, CPT, and Medicare do not agree on how to use the codes. I'm gonna try and clear up a little bit of the confusion as now we are well into 2023 and using these codes. There are a few things that will be important to know when choosing an initial hospital observation code 
99221-223 and the subsequent inpatient hospital observation codes 99231-233. First, there continues to be no change to the new and established patient concept. So it applies to any patient that's coming in the hospital. But now there is a, and I'm air quoting, per stay, meaning that an initial service is when the patient has not received any professional services from the physician or other qualified healthcare professional or another physician or other qualified healthcare professional of the exact same specialty and subspecialty, that's important, who belongs to the same group practice during the inpatient observation or nursing facility admission and stay. The new rule alone will be very tough for groups who have subspecialists. So, for example, if a general cardiologist admits a patient and then during that stay, not even on the same date, but during the stay, asks for a consult from the EP or electrophysiologist, subspecialist, in the same group practice, they can no longer bill for that initial hospital code, which we have been doing in the past for that consult. According to CPT, the consulting physician would report the subsequent hospital codes because now their encounter does not qualify as initial. This will be a huge loss of revenue. Next, if you are a consultant that saw the patient in consultation, and I'm quoting from CPT, in anticipation of or related to an admission by another physician or other qualified healthcare professional, and then the same consultant performs an encounter once the patient is admitted by the other physician or other QHP, CPT says to report the consultant's initial inpatient encounter with the appropriate subsequent care codes. So again, if you were the physician who did a pre-op eval in your office at some point for a patient, and now you're being asked to see the patient in an inpatient setting for an encounter, that is now considered subsequent hospital. Think of the hospitalist asking you to come see your patient when they admitted the patient. This is not an initial inpatient if you saw them in your office first for a related visit. Now this is subsequent hospital. Per CPT, this instruction applies whether the consultation occurred on the date of the admission or a date previous to the admission, which was surprising to me. It also applies for consultations reported with any appropriate code. So office visit, other outpatient and office visit, or other outpatient consultation. There is a caveat here for me. How far back does this encounter refer to? AMA needs to clarify that, and I have submitted that question. The next area of confusion is the place of service. If you have a patient, for example, that was seen in the ER and then admitted, you have a place of service 21 by the admitting physician. Then subsequently, hospital visits would continue to be a place of service 21. Easy. But what if the patient has been downgraded to observation on discharge? Your discharge code now combined, 99238, is now place of service 22 for outpatient. This could cause some payer issues, so monitor your EOBs. And lastly, there is a conflict with AMA and CMS for ongoing observation care that could, again, cause some payer and reimbursement confusion. So observation care is considered place of service outpatient or 22, but the initial hospital visit code is now the same as the inpatient code, 99221-223. Medicare Chapter 12 of the Claims Processing Manual, 30.6.8a, specifies that while a practitioner who orders the observation care for a patient may bill for observation care, other practitioners providing additional evaluation for the patient bill their office or other outpatient E&M codes, which switched to the 99202 to 215 that does have a newer established patient designation. It goes on to say in the final rule, payment for an initial observation care code is for all the care rendered by the ordering physician on the date of the patient's observation care services began. All other physicians who furnish consultations or additional evaluation or services while the patient is receiving hospital outpatient observation services, 
must bill the appropriate outpatient service code, again, office visit codes. So for example, if an internist sees or orders observation services and asks another physician to additionally evaluate the patient, only the internist may bill the initial and subsequent observation care code. The other physicians who evaluate the patient must bill new or established office or other outpatient visit codes as appropriate during the same stay. I'm anticipating some place of service confusion for reimbursement, so while all this gets figured out on the payer's end as well as for us on the coding end, monitor your EOBs carefully. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Terry. That was really terrific. That was nationally recognized coder, auditor, and consultant Terry Fletcher. Once again, here is Dr. Erica Reamer with her very popular segment here at Talk 10 Tuesdays called Talk Back. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Well, as Terry was talking about, January 1st, 2023, the Professional Evaluation and Management Codes and Guidelines were revised with the intent to decrease the burden of documentation. For years, clinicians had been browbeaten into documenting elements which were primarily busy work. CPT and CMS conjointly did an overhaul of the documentation guidelines, and it's now time to do an overhaul of the electronic medical record. Today, I'm going to focus in on how we can take advantage of this opportunity in which the facilities and professional fees interests have now become aligned. Next week, please invite your providers to listen in as I give tips on how to compose useful, readable documentation in an efficient way. Templates for the EHR were built to accommodate the needs for billing. We added sections into our documentation as new demands were placed upon us. A chief complaint is still useful. A history of present illness should still tell the story of why the patient is here now. CMS mandates that a medically appropriate history and physical be performed. The provider gets to decide what that is. You can keep the past medical, surgical, family, and social history in the template, but practitioners needn't include them if they are not relevant. Good riddance to a mandated review of systems. Have the IT folks figure out how to offer these sections, but not have them be visible if the provider opts out. Keep a review of systems section, but educate providers to use it sensibly and to advance patient care. They should be cautioned against clicking on systems which they did not explore, and they are no longer compelled to include a review of systems caveat. There are no longer a mandatory number of body parts or systems which need to be examined to fulfill CMS's guidelines. The provider should examine the offending part or system and any other systems which might be related or contributing. Besides it being good medicine, the provider should keep in mind that there may be other entities which mandate a history and physical examination be performed still, like lawyers, accreditation entities, the medical board, or medical staff bylaws. The key to a properly leveled E&M service is now the medical decision-making, and the template should be adapted. The provider should think of the patient as an integrated unit, even if they have multiple body systems which are malfunctioning, and they should document holistically. Please read my article in ICD-10 Monitor for details on how I would design a template, but here are a few pointers. Principal diagnosis would have a drop-down list to assert the complexity of the problem. Free text narrative explication of the course and plan. Secondary diagnoses should include comorbidities and chronic underlying diseases with a checkbox for chronic conditions 
to indicate whether each one was stable, in exacerbation, or in severe exacerbation, which distinguishes between the three of them. An area where the provider can indicate how the secondary diagnosis is being addressed is important. In the data section, was an independent historian necessary and why? Common tests which were performed and the analysis of these tests. If an external document or test was independently reviewed, what was gleaned and how was it interpreted? If there was a discussion with another external physician or other qualified healthcare professional, what was said? In the risk from the management section, in addition to clicking on a box, you would need to explain prescription drug management, drug therapy requiring intensive monitoring for toxicity, decision for surgery, hospitalization to escalate or de-escalate care or setting, parental controlled substances, diagnosis or treatment significantly limited by social determinants of health. Having structured but detailed sections helps guide the provider into giving the information to demonstrate the complexity of the medical decision-making, and it helps the professional coder be able to choose the appropriate level of service. Next week, I am going to give concrete suggestions on how to make clinical documentation as painless to compose as possible for the creator while maintaining its usefulness to the reader. Together, let's all put mentation back into documentation. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. And that is going to be a wrap for this, our 538th live edition of Talk to Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today. Tiffany Ferguson, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Dr. John Zellman, Terry Fletcher, and a very special thanks to my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Be sure to be with us next Tuesday for another edition of Talking Tuesday. Have a good week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.